Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This program is our second 2017 visit with ethnologist Dr. Victoria Patterson. We continue our discussion about how the native people of North America were initially treated by the United States and later during the westward expansion. Patterson describes the manner in which the Nez Perce Nation conducted themselves in the face of incredible adversity, which led to widespread admiration among their military adversaries and the American public. Led by Chief Joseph, the Nez Perce eventually retreated to Canada rather than being sent to reservations. She also discusses the consequences to the native people when they entered into written treaties with the United States. Not having a written language, the native people relied on the carefully chosen words they spoke during the treaty negotiations and the words spoken by the representatives of the United States. When my friend Vicki Patterson visited the Radio Curious studios on January 23, 2017, we began when she elaborated on and put into context the statement of Chief Joseph. It does not require many words to speak the truth. One of the great disconnects between indigenous people in the United States and the Europeans who came later to settle here is the difference in culture and the use of language. All of the indigenous tribes prior to the 1830s were more or less oral cultures. And in an oral culture, what you say has tremendous power because speech is something that once it leaves your mouth, it's there. You can't take it back. And so you have to be very careful about what you say in oral tradition. And so many Indians were careful about what they said. When you have a culture that depends on writing, as the European culture did in terms of all these treaties and palavers and conversations, what came out of their mouth wasn't as important as what was written on a piece of paper. And so there was a lot of disconnect between the meaning of words. And, you know, we're... Recently in the news has been this term, the alternate facts. And of course, that's what happened, is that they were speaking from different universes with alternate facts, except in their case, you know, for Native people, what they were speaking was the truth and didn't need papers to write and change and distort what had come out of people's mouths. Because when you hear that in oral tradition, that's what you retain, what somebody said. It's the only entry into the brain of knowledge transmitted by another person. That's right. So I think that's what Chief Joseph meant. You don't need a lot of paper. You don't need a lot of conversation 
you say what you mean after thinking carefully about what you're going to say. You know, we know the cliche, white man speak with fork and tongue. Well, it's true. <laughs> they said lots of things that they didn't mean and that they took back and that weren't the truth. Or that uh, may have varying meanings. Yes, multiple meanings, yes. The doctrine of discovery is an example of an alternate fact in a sense. It was a notion put forward by the Pope and by early European countries, especially Spain, uh, during the Age of Discovery, where they declared that it was okay to colonize any non-Christian place on Earth. The Treaty of Tordesillas, which is the thing that divided the Atlantic between Spain and Portugal and allowed Portugal eventually to claim Brazil, was the sovereign action behind the papal bull, so to speak, that allowed them to colonize non-Christian lands. And unfortunately, this notion did not stick to the Age of Discovery. Justice Marshall, who we mentioned in connection with the Cherokee versus Georgia case, used it in that case to show that the Cherokee were a dependent nation, not an independent sovereign state. It was used in a case called Johnson versus McIntosh, where they had conflicting land claims. Johnson had inherited land that was purchased uh, from Indians directly. Um, that tribe subsequently sold the same piece of land um, and ended up in the U.S. government, and McIntosh bought it from the government. In that case, Marshall decided that McIntosh's claim was more valid because it came directly from the U.S. government. The U.S. government had the title to the land because they had discovered it, in quotes. So this notion of the doctrine of discovery is still used today. I think there was a case in 2005 where it was cited for an indigenous case in the United States. And then, of course, the question is discovered by whom, well, yeah, when, because, and where. Exactly, because Native people were never consulted in any of these decisions or any of these treaties or any of these notions of discovery. They didn't exist. So it's very racist and very ethnocentric. Dr. Victoria Patterson, uh, for people who are concerned about the rights of Native people in North America and other parts of the world, what would you suggest be done by them? Well, I think one of the first steps is to get to know Native people because so many of these decisions have been made without the input of the people about whom they are made. Um, there have been always individuals who have stood up for Indian rights, who have uh, protested to the government about injustice to Native people, but some of these have been misguided by their own mm, notions about what Indians should be. For example, during the whole issue about Indian citizenship, there was a group of non-Indians who advocated for Indian citizenship, but their idea was to assimilate Indians into the larger mainstream society, and by making them citizens and able to vote, you know, they would become just like us. Well, many Indians don't want to become like us. And so um, they didn't really consult with Native people about what they wanted. And I think that's very important. And I think it was very um, inspiring to see how many non-Native people went to Standing Rock and stood with Native people and took direction from Native people about their role in the protest. I think that's very, very important. Uh, I think locally it's important to get to know Native people. You know, I have been working with these tribes for over 40 years, and although they are very welcoming at their big times for anybody to want to come, 
I don't see that many community people there. As the years have gone by, I've seen more and more attending, which is very heartening to see that people are getting to know their neighbors, so to speak. There are local issues that if you agree with the position of the tribe, you might want to participate in, like the Save the Little Lake Valley uh, protests that have been going on. Um, but I think the main thing is to let go of your ego and find out from your Native American neighbors what their concerns are, where they would like support, where they would need allies. Let go of your ego is an interesting comment because from the individual perspective of those uh, of us who live here on the earth, uh, the world revolves around each one of us. We see it from our own perspective. So to let go of that is extraordinary. Yeah, but you can't see it from another perspective unless you do let go of your own and begin to see the world through other eyes. You know, part of my interest in ethno-history has been the quest to understand this area where we live together from another perspective. And by looking at how language works and what the original names for some of the landmarks uh, that we see around us has been absolutely fascinating because I begin to see this whole area with different eyes. Can you give us some examples? Well, to know the stories about how this part of the world was formed by the first people who lived on it uh, tells me that there was a time when there were people who, who, there were beings who lived in this area who could do things then that we can only do in our dreams today. They could cover great distances with one step. They could change their shapes and so on. And during this period of time, uh, Coyote was living to the east of here, and he was very offended when the Wood Duck sisters refused to become his wife, his wives. And so he decided to take revenge, and he changed his shape into an old grandmother, invited these girls to go picking buckeye with him up in the mountains. And they went, he sort of attacked them, and they became pregnant and gave birth to children in the village, and the villagers were furious at Coyote, and they, they killed one of the children. He left his children while he went out hunting, but the villagers refused to feed them, which is really a shocking thing to do in those communities. And so he went further to the east, found a cave, and worked on it by stuffing it with tar and pitch and all kinds of wood until he one day set it on fire, ran back to the village and said, oh, there's a fire, there's a fire. And the people were begging him, please help us, please help us. He said no. And then he disappeared, and he ran up. The, the world went on fire. He ran up to the top of what we call Red Mountain today and went, ascended to the sky with a magic quiver that he had and, and magic arrows. And to this day, that area is all red. And it's fascinating to know why. We call it Red Mountain. It was because it was scorched by this fire. After that, Coyote went to the coast. He started eating everything because everything was burned up, so there was a lot of roasted meat. And he ate everything, got very thirsty, went over to the coast, took a huge drinks of water from the ocean, and began to feel sick from drinking all the water and eating all the food. And so he kind of stumbled back east to where he lived. And he tripped and fell on his bloated stomach, and out came water, which formed Clear Lake. So these are fascinating stories to me because they explain a lot of actual geological changes. You know, the fact that he came towards the ocean, because we know that Blue Lakes at one time drained to the ocean, and then an earthquake came, or, or upheaval, Volcanic upheaval came and changed the water course. 
to the east. And so a lot of these ancient stories actually reflect true geological changes that occurred. But they also reflect on how people should behave to each other. I'd like you to reflect more on how people should relate to each other using the examples that you've given. But first I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Dr. Victoria Patterson, an ethnologist who lives and works in Ukiah, California, the home of Radio Curious, and talking about the native peoples and reflections on an address that she presented to the Ukiah community on January 22, 2017, entitled, It Does Not Require Many Words to Speak the Truth. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. So, in this case, you know, Coyote, who has transgressed normal behavior in terms of what he did to those girls, is banished from his community, and so he takes revenge. But the end of the story is that eventually groups of people come to live around Clear Lake, and they form communities with captains or chiefs, and they begin to create a normal set of relationships between people. And this is an example of how a major transgression has caused a conflagration that burned up the earth. But they're given a second chance to come together and behave in a more moral way. When you say um, normal relationships among people or behave in a I mean more relationships way. of respect and uh, thoughtfulness about other people in a community. But this is within the Pomo culture. Yes, that, yes. That lived in... Ancient in, Pomo culture. So can you describe in a time frame uh, when this ancient time was and what was normal? Well, you know, we're talking about a time that we don't have any direct knowledge of. We only have the memories of people whose memories come from the memories of their grandparents, whose memories come from the memories of their grandparents, and so on. Because archaeological evidence shows that Pomoan peoples have lived in this area in a settled way for a minimum of 10,000 years before present. And so we're talking about many, many, many memories. And so we can only glean uh, what life was like during that time from those memories and from the things that people think are appropriate today in terms of their culture. But the culture has changed enormously due to many factors, due to modern technology, due to um, a history of post-traumatic stress syndrome brought about by the constant warfare and decimation of lives and land. And so you have a very different kind of culture today, although certain elements of that culture are still retained. The focus on family, the importance of family, is still very much in evidence in Pomoan groups today. So if we were to go back in this uh, section of North America, Northern California, along the coast, about 120 miles north of the San Francisco Bay, uh, 180 years ago, there was no contact with European people. Can you describe for us uh, the daily life and the daily life patterns as you've come to know them of the native people at that time? And again, I have to say, this is not from direct knowledge, but it's from you know many ethnographies and people I've spoken to, but there's no way of knowing 
for sure what took place. But it seems as though people in this area were not part of huge tribes like the Sioux Nation or the Navajo Nation. They lived in small village communities, basically made up of extended families. And these groups didn't have uh, an umbrella organization. They were not known as the Pomo. This is a term that has been placed on them by linguists and then ethnographers to describe a group of people who speak uh, six uh, mutually unintelligible but linguistically related languages. So you had these small village communities living in um, very, a very rich resource, a, a, a resource-rich environment that enabled them to stay more or less in a small ecological niche, although they did exploit all of the avenues available to them. So people from this area, for example, used things from Clear Lake. They used things from the coast. Um, but they didn't travel far from where they lived. And, uh, and so um, people say, well, how come there's so many different languages if they you know, stayed so isolated? How did they communicate? And they were able to communicate because many people were bilingual or trilingual. We don't think about that. <laughs> In other words, they spoke the language of their parents and the languages of their neighbors. I've known people, elders, who spoke four or five languages. They spoke English, Spanish, Central Pomo, Eastern Pomo, and Northern Pomo. Vicki Patterson, what happened to the original people of this area? Where do they live now and why? Well, fortuitously, many of the uh, descendants of the original Palmoan-speaking peoples of this area still live in their homelands. And this is really miraculous because so many tribes across the United States were removed from their homelands, you know, in the infamous Trail of Tears, forced to live thousands of miles from where they originated and from where their uh, origin stories come from, where they were embedded in the soil of the land that they lived in. They were moved away. And this was extremely traumatic situation because if you lived in a place for 10,000 years, you really are of that place in terms of the food you've ingested and the, the lifestyle you've created and the relationship you have with everything around you. It's both spiritual and material. But here, because there wasn't any place to move them to, the rest of the United States have been taken up with other tribes. Um, reservations and rancherias were created for California Indians. And so they remain more or less in their original homeland. Maybe not exactly on the acreage, but um, certainly in a familiar environment. That's very unique uh, in U.S. Indian history. Say more about becoming uh, part of where your ancestors have lived for 10,000 years. Well, I think about it. Yeah, I think about it in terms of a family living in a house for generations. And if that family has lived in one house for generations, you know everything. You, as a child of that family, know everything about the house. You know every crack in the wall, every creak in the floor, and you remember. You know, people tell you, "Oh, yeah, Uncle Joe was up in that room, and Aunt Sylvia did this in that room, and Grandma's." Uh, recipes were really great and so you know it intimately well that's how people here knew this whole natural environment that intimately and uh, some ethnographers have reported that they went 
to various places in um, Mendocino County with uh, a Native person who hadn't been to that place for 25 years, and they knew exactly where the creek was, and they knew exactly where certain trees were, and they knew exactly where certain gathering spots were. And so to know a whole environment as intimately as we might know a house held for generations is really quite something. And when that time span has been thousands of years, not a hundred or two hundred, but thousands, you can understand how intimately people become part of their environment. There's a book entitled Deep Valley that provides a description of this part of California, the uh, small valley where Ukiah is in Mendocino County in, in Northern California. Can you talk briefly about Deep Valley? Yes, Deep Valley was a book written by a man named Aginsky, who was a sociologist from New York, whose family was very wealthy. They had a very wealthy construction company. They built a lot of buildings, and he became sort of an avocational sociologist. He had been at Columbia University, but developed this idea of creating a project that would look at a rural community over a period of time and see the changes, mark the changes in social relationships between elements of that community. He picked Ukiah, and he started a field project that came to Ukiah every year for over 10 years with a multidisciplinary team of researchers, a group of students. It was a project funded by the University of Syracuse, and the students were master's degree students, and they were assigned to study various aspects of this rural community. So it's to produce a snapshot of a rural community over a period of time. So from 19, about 1934 to 1947, with a small hiatus during the Second World War, um, so he had someone who was interested in agriculture, and they examined all the agriculture. He had someone interested in mineralogy. They studied, you know, geology and mineral formations. They came and they talked to all kinds of people in Ukiah. They talked to, they, they divided Ukiah into a variety of ethnic groups. There were the Italians, there were the townspeople, and there were the Indians. And so they were looking at the relationships of these people with each other and with other groups of people in the area. So in that project, Aginsky and his students interviewed many Indians, especially from the Ukiah area. And his students later on became fairly well-known uh, ethnologists, and they produced their own work about Indians in this area. Anyway, it was a remarkable project, and based on those interviews, Aginsky decided to write a fictionalized account. This is a fictionalized account, Deep Valley, of what life might have been like in the Ukiah Valley just on the eve of contact. In other words, in his book, the local Indians hear about uh, the Spanish in the Sonoma area, and they talk about, you know, seeing, they talk about rumors they've heard of these newcomers. So uh, he tries to recreate, based on his interviews, a, a picture of Native life prior to white contact in Mendocino and Lake Counties. And that's Deep Valley by Bert and Ethel Aginsky. Dr. Victoria Patterson, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask about you. And the first question is about a eureka or an aha moment that changed your view of the world and, and perhaps consequently your life. I did have one. Uh, I had a, a vision possibly under the influence of other substances. <laughs> that was very clear. It was a kind of 
kind of sort of dream or reverie where it seems really real, where whatever occurs seems like it's really happening. And this was a vision of a young boy, a native boy, probably in the southwest, because it was like a desert environment. And he was laying sticks on the ground in a square, each stick positioned very carefully in the square. And this vision came with a title to it. And I had been doing a lot of work with Native people, and so it came with sort of a Native name. And the name of the boy in this vision was, He Does It Right. And I suddenly understood that there was an order to the way people did things. And there was only a right way and a not right way. And it enabled me to understand sort of Native ritual and Native beliefs and that there was a right way to do things. And so that really influenced my understanding and pushed me in the direction of continuing looking at Native people and working with them. We've done that for over 40 years. And my next question is, what would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? Well, I have a lovely granddaughter who I'd like to spend as much time with as possible. But I also like to travel because I love seeing how other people live. Some years ago, well, not too long ago, I went and lived in Ecuador for a year teaching at the University of Cuenca because I wanted to live in a Spanish-speaking culture as a participant in the culture, not only as a visitor. And so I had that opportunity, and it was a wonderful experience. I would like to do that again, but I'm not sure where. But I've been taking a lot of small trips here and there, and I'm just fascinated by how other people live in the world. And finally, uh, Vicki Patterson, is there a book that you can recommend to our listeners? Well, because of my interest in other people, um, I've been reading, the most recent book I read is a collection edited by Bill Bryson on the best travel stories of uh, 2016. And these are not the kind of things you might find in a travel magazine, like this is the best hotel or this is the best restaurant. They are more people's experiences in a different place or a place different to them. And so it's quite fascinating. And the, the stories range from a teenage surfing off Diamond Head to cigarette smuggling in Eastern Europe. So it's a very enjoyable collection. Well, Dr. Vicki Patterson, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you again for having me. Dr. Victoria Patterson is an ethnologist who has studied the native people of what is now the United States for the past 40 years. She lives and works in Ukiah, California. You may enjoy our 1999 two-part series with Dr. Patterson about the Pomo people of Northern California prior to contact with Europeans and then again 10 years after. These programs are found on RadioCurious.org by searching for Patterson. The book that Victoria Patterson recommends is The Best American Travel Writing 2016 by Bill Bryson. This program was recorded on January 23, 2017. There are now over 630 archive editions on Radio Curious, 
That's RadioCurious.org. They're free for you to enjoy, download, and share as you wish. We appreciate your cards, letters, and ideas about our programming and look forward to hearing from you. 280 North Oak, Ukiah, California, 95482-707-462-6541. Angie Boyles Askham is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.